Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. I am ready. Okay. And this is number nine zero. 90. And I was just looking, and today being March 1st, yes. when this is released, we are 23 days shy of our two-year mark of the Addiction Connection podcast. Really? We're, gonna, we're busting over 30,000 downloads, probably about that same time. Busting. Crashing through. Goodness gracious. Why people listen to you, I don't know. I've been wondering the same about you. So we're really great. But my 12-year-old still insists I am still the funniest. Yeah. Well, today's talk on that confusing confusing note. Um, this actually, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. No when, way. When I was working on something else and I ran across some of the, uh, kind of the MOUD history as far as legislation in the last 50 years, that's really shaped what we do. I love that you did this legislative stuff because you're not really the politician I, yeah, of the two of us. I'm, no, I'm not really big into politics. But it's, you like history. And yeah. like I said at the end of last week, so it's because you lived it. So it's not really your history. It's just like I've been around your life for a while. experience. But yeah, this is really about you know 50 years of MOUD. Yeah, so I, you were 10 already. Yeah. You are older than penicillin and MOUD. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm older than C-Clor, maybe. But, uh, nobody knows what C-Clor is. Yeah, Cephaclor. Yeah. No, nobody uses it. Yeah, some anyway. people do. But, uh, you know, the really, how folk. the question is really, how does the policy ad- advance the use of MOUD? And, and really, there's a few different ways. Yeah, I love this number letter A, improved recognition of opioid use disorder. Yeah. I'm not quite sure everyone's still there yet. No, but you know, it's improved. It doesn't take much to improve. That's, so, you know. You know, a lot of the practices now have been more standardized. I, I think that's, uh, that's a key. I am going <laughs> to go back to the first one. You know, as history continues to happen, um, and the further we get in improved recognition, all the stigmatizing generations are starting to retire or get forgetful. And so mm. this newer generation. Yeah. There is something good about, you know, Gen X or whatever the heck they're called. Yeah. I mean, I think clearly uh, there's a lot more um, understanding now. I mean, I think people are more understanding of addiction. I think people are just more understanding of people in general. Mm. We could just end there. Yeah. Shortest podcast ever. So, yeah. And also, of course, policies really helped increase access to treatment. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, if you start to actually recognize it, you need to do something about it. And uh, That would be the next logical step. Yeah, and the reality is that, that you don't get much done unless there's some reimbursement for these things as well. And, you know, I, I think a lot of these different bills have made it, for instance, one of them, uh, made it so that you can get MOUD paid for by Medicare, which right. which is really important. We I have Medicare patients that are on MOUD. So. Right, and without 400 levels of prior authorization. Mm. 
Anyway, so despite this positive federal policy promoting MAT, I have to say it like that. Yeah. Um, so access to, I don't even know what that means, visualization. Is that what your handwriting oh, says? that's utilization. And, oh. and utilization of the system has failed to keep pace with the continued worsening of the opioid crisis. Do you think that's because of denial or people not wanting to admit that you know, like the American Pain Society pushed this or the pain is the fifth vital sign. So we made this huge pushback in the day going with the best knowledge that they were pushed at. And now you don't want to have to come back and be like, uh. Well, and you know, one of the arguments uh, really now is that there's less people that are started on opioids who end up on heroin. Fewer. Fewer. Um, and so it's the the big thing was, well, then why, why are we so concerned about... Uh, who buys flavored water that's not sparkling? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody. Uh, but, you know, the, the reality, they're, they're just basically saying, well, if less people are put on opioids. Fewer. Fewer are. Why are we so concerned? Because we've stopped creating people who are now on heroin. But what are we going to do about the people that we already created? Yeah, and there's, there's you know, the, the deaths are going to be six figures this year. So in the u.s oh my goodness i just read the statistic from 2009 to 2019 so we kind of got started in all this in 15 treatment facilities offering mat increased by just a whopping 18 percent yeah and i remember this is yeah. not that long ago but when we got started in 2016 prescribing buprenorphine i mean we had a list of like three treatment facilities in our state i'm exaggerating mm. a hair that you could send a patient to who's on mat mm. and the list is a little bit longer, but... And I think the thing to really remember is that during during that same time, and this is prior to COVID, uh, opioid deaths had increased 130%. And that's probably much higher now uh, because the, the deaths have gone up substantially, like by 25%. Can I last... go on a tangent for a second? You can, but keep it short. <laughs> so when you said prior to COVID, so I went to Gustavus, as you know, uh, and everybody marks time if you went to Gustavus pre-tornado or after post-tornado this was a big tornado that went through Gustavus I'm mm. post-tornado but anyway that What's just made point? me think of that the whole pre-covid post-covid oh. we're going to judge our lives now based on that so a little tornado moment. like Gustavus you're comparing a to little COVID. tornado you so, were there pre-tornado at track meet so don't I even was. <laughs> um so let's let's look at these five we're going to talk about five milestone acts that really have impacted kind of that standard of care for OUD treatment, policy, uh, and really the lives of millions of patients and really their families. Hmm. But there's five different acts. Jeez. Yeah. Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. Yeah, and that was in 1970. So I was nine. I was negative 12. There. <laughs> uh, and then we, the second one is in uh, 1974, the Narcotic... I don't like the name of this one, Narcotic Addict Treatment Act of 1974. I was negative eight. Yep. And then uh, the drug, I mean, look at the wording the of this. The Data Act, the Drug yeah. Addiction Treatment Act of 2000. 2000. This is where you needed to do the waiver course. That's where the, the waiver, that, that's why they call it a data waiver. No so, way. Yes. And then the Comprehensive Addiction and eight. Recovery Act. So we were around, we were doing this when the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act of 2016 came out. That's the CARA. Yep. That We actually got a grant on this. The CARA Act, isn't that what did our... Did something. Echo. Maybe. So, and then the substance use disorder prevention that promotes opioid recovery and treatment for patients and communities act. And that was in 2018. So we'll, 
talk a little bit about what each of these, how they changed our lives. Okay. So, but we also have to consider what it was like before there was MOUD and legislation. And so, yeah, I mean, Civil that was war. a big thing. Civil War, 300,000 people. Chronic opioids by 1900. Yeah. Can you imagine that? That's all. And the population of the U.S. was much smaller at that time, but 300,000 people came out of the I Civil would war. love to um, go back somehow and look at the note cards that these providers had because they, you know, clearly didn't have electronic medical records that made you write books for each patient visit. In 1900, they didn't even uh, probably probably write anything down. But I would just love to see exactly what people are on, how much they were on, how often they were taking it. Just There's a lot of people, clearly 300,000 more than, but I would just like to know what chronic opioid therapy, like what that looked like compared to a thousand morphine equivalents. So if you take a sip of the opium. Um, And it's interesting because during this time, the interesting thing is if you look at MOUD and what was going on. Back then, they were prescribing morphine and heroin and cocaine to sometimes taper or detoxify people. And, and often, they were doing it just to maintain somebody so that they didn't do it illegally, if you will. Maintain? Yeah, so that was maintenance. They were doing opioid maintenance with full agonist. That Short was, acting, full agonist. Well, a lot of morphine. Okay, um, so the practice of prescribing opioids as a treatment to detox, detoxify actually ended it t- not until 1919 when the Supreme Court, oh, the interpretation ruled. of the Harrison Narcotic Act of yeah. 1914. And they basically reinterpreted that and went, hold it, you can't just prescribe these things for people who already have an addiction. That's just wrong. You're just basically their dealer. Okay, so what do they do then? Mm. What do they give them? Uh, well, that's nothing. why they sent him to the farm. <laughs> nothing. So basically, prescribing dispensing opioids for the purpose of treating opioid addiction was done. It was done. It was like through. So. So this is why we can't prescribe methadone if in a regular clinic because you can do it for pain in a regular primary care clinic, but you can't do it for addiction. And this is kind of that same mentality. Like you can't. Well, that. it's that same thing like you get somebody come in and they're in heroin withdrawal. You can't give them morphine. Correct. You know, you, and that's what they previously would right. do. So really, it was that Federal Response Act in 1929 that was the first one. It was the Narcotics Farm Act of 1929. That actually established these narcotic farms. And we don't want to dwell on those because we're going to do a little talk on that in the future. But there were just a couple ways you'd get there. And one of them was being you know, convicted of a drug-related crime. And the other was sometimes you could just check yourself into these farms, and there was two of them. Yeah, Lexington, Kentucky, and Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah. And that was all there was for 30 years. Yeah. So I would just, again, let's go back to these Civil War people. 1900. So We're going to go is, back again. This is only like 20-some years, 30 years after that 300,000 in the 1900s. I mean, so these were potentially some slightly more elderly humans oh a lot of them were younger think about they were fighting in the war i know but this is 30 years later oh that war i was thinking the civil war 1900s you said there was three hundred thousand. Yeah. so i'm thinking those but yes oh, they're probably in their 40s 50s yeah so at that time that was considered old but um man they just took them off after being on them for all these years and then you either go to the farm or you drink yourself to death or what yeah well and think about it what they they really did when they with this harrison act is they threw all the people with opioid issues into the justice system. And so it was basically a criminalized thing now. You were, you were a criminal justice thing, not a medical problem. 
And I love this little tangent I'm about to take because Ooh. one of the other, this is huge in Minnesota right now, actually. I'm doing a forum soon on decriminalization of drugs. And so we're going to do a podcast on that at some point here, but it's just great that it took how many years? This was almost 100 years to go from criminalizing drugs to decriminalizing drugs. Yeah, when methadone hit. No, no. Decriminalizing starts like we're still criminalizing. Oh, okay. Considering a majority of our people in our criminal justice system and prisons are in for drug-related crimes. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So, you know, part of the farm thing was, hey, let's get you out some fresh air. It's going to be wholesome. You're going to come around and... You're going to be cured. Yeah, and so that was one of the reasons. They're, they're really, they had this mission. The people that worked there, there were some people that had a pretty good idea what they were trying to do, and they were trying to figure out, you know, the hows and whys of addiction and trying to rehabilitate people and, and of course, to find this permanent cure. Could mm. they find a permanent cure at the narcotics farm? So Well, clearly not. They didn't, no. no. Um, and actually 90% of the people that left the narcotic farms relapsed. I wonder what that looked like. How many overdoses do you think? I mean, you know, the 129% leaving jail in two weeks, you'd overdose. But I wonder what this looked like back then. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's interesting. You didn't have the state making them gather data. No, I don't <laughs> think that was going on at all. But one, one of the things they did do, and, and again, we'll talk about this more during our narcotic farm talk, but, you know, they were looking for treatment models. They were looking for research. But a lot of the research was done kind of on volunteers, so there was, they weren't we were really volunteers. Yeah, you were kind of voluntold, and then they gave you some drugs. And uh, we'll talk about that probably the next time. And we'll talk a little bit on the, the narcotic farm thing. We'll, when we actually do the talk, we'll talk about really what they did find. Yes. So. All right. So now we're going to talk about what happened after that. So NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse. Love NIDA. We can talk about Nora Vokal and Wilson Compton forever. Mm. And now Ivan can't say his last Montoya. name. Montoya. Anyway, so the following are contributed, what? Contribution and discoveries of ARC Addiction Research Center. Are we not talking about that? No, ARC is actually what was at the narcotic farms. Oh, okay. Were. And Sorry. so you, you guys, I'm trying you to. You know, the whole like thing about doctors and handwriting. Oh my gosh, if you could read. I don't know how Katie makes presentations off of these yeah, handwritings. I, I kind of want to leave some of the narcotic stuff for the actual narcotic farm talk. And so I, couldn't tell that I don't want to talk about that kind of and some of the ethical things that went on there. Okay. So, but we'll just go to the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970 when okay. I was nine. Okay. I'll let you talk because I wasn't alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But basically what the legislature did is legislature legislature did um, is they took this step to kind of require providers to register if they were prescribing controlled substances. If you think about it, this is basically what the a, DEA. Yeah, where the DEA came from. Initially they're called the Bureau of Narcotics, but clearly it's you know, that's kind of a vague name. And then it became this framework for the methadone regulation, which is so regulated. Yeah, it is very regulated. And and so Understanding that in 1970 is really where they started to work on whether or not methadone was going to be a viable MOUD. Um, and, and in 1974, they finally agreed it was. Yeah, just four years later, the Narcotic Addict Treatment Act. I wish they'd changed the name of that. You know what's interesting is that they're not going to change something they've already like moved forward 30, 40 mm, years. They could. 50 years. Um, here was what's interesting to me is that you just said just four years later, from 70 to 74. But think about how frustrated we are with 
having to wait five minutes for like a duh thing you, to happen in policy change. You, and now you just I'm said, calm. yeah, just four years. I mean, that's, I mean, yes, just four years, but at the same time, yeah. how many people died in that four years? Yeah. And really in 1974 is when Congress kind of recognized, you know, Hey, methadone could be used as maintenance treatment. So let's do it. Uh, and so they went around and established these requirements for your registration to prescribe methadone, which are onerous. Yeah, we're like not going to get into that. We, have, I mean, we can make Charlie come back and talk about all that again. Yeah, Otherwise, that, go back a couple of months. That would be like four hours. Um, go back to episode eighty-three on methadone clinics one hundred and one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and so yeah, that's really how that all started, and it was actually, you know, twenty-five, twenty-six years until there was any other significant legislation around opioid use disorder well i mean it took them a bit i mean you had methadone and again if we're going back to the whole fact that use disorders and opioid use disorders are so stigmatized people probably not out there trying to develop a new mat because you had methadone that's good enough think about it there's far more better things we can research and so i mean it took a while then buprenorphine and suboxone came to be and i think often people wonder why methadone is kind of the gold standard how everything is really compared against it but there's really you know, 25 years of very good research and experience with it. And I think often we kind of look at sending a patient to the methadone clinic as like, oh, we failed with these other things. But it's like there are patients who just do better on methadone. That's just the way it is. And it works. Um, But, yeah, 25 years of more than buprenorphine as far as experience. So we're going to just jump ahead to this little methadone discussion, or are we going to finish the axe first? No, we're going to just do the axe, and then we're going to just leave that stuff for the next one. Okay, I was like, oh. Okay, so the CARA Act, Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act of 2016. So expanded. um, That expanded. Yeah, oh, so then the nurse practitioners and the PAs could also prescribe buprenorphine. Yeah, and prior to that, they had not been able to. Um, so it was 2003 with the other act where physicians were allowed to use BUP in 2000 and if they got their data waiver. Uh, and it wasn't until 16 years, or excuse me, That's yeah, crazy. Six, 16 years later that the PAs and nurse practitioners could uh, get involved, which I think was a, that was probably part of the problem as far as access. Yeah, I mean... That's part of the problem. <laughs> How many people prior to... How many people do you think got data wavered in that first couple of years? Oh, there weren't a lot. Because you remember in 2016, we were number 103 and 104. No, 102 and 3. 102 and 103. In Minnesota, yes. And only like a third of them were prescribing. So, And how many of them were PAs and nurse practitioners before us? Because we didn't get ours. In, well, we got ours the same year that yeah, nurse practitioners and PAs. Yeah, none of them. And that's why there's like six or 700 now. Crazy. Yep. Okay, so now we move to 2018. Which is the last big act that has been put in place. Which made it so people can get reimbursed and Medicare to cover maintenance and all this. Yeah, which was interesting because a lot of addiction stuff like uh, like MOUD wouldn't be covered by Medicare, and so patients couldn't get access. This was called the Substance Use Disorder Prevention that Promotes Opioid Recovery and Treatment for Patients and Communities Act. No fun name for that. No. But. Um, but this is interesting. So for those of you who don't know, you know, the first year you have your waiver, you can prescribe for 30 patients, and then you have to, like, ask the DEA to let you do 100 patients the next year, and then you can, like, ask to go up higher. But this act in 2018, with a really long, boring name, made it so you could 
ask to do more than 30 patients that first year. Again, increasing access. Why limit it if you're knowing what you're doing and you're taking good care of patients? Yeah, and the latest thing that changed, of course, that I don't have listed on here is when they changed the ruling now as far as having to take the course. Now you can prescribe without actually taking the course, although we know people that have taken the course anyway. And I think that was always a big barrier when we got started in the mentoring and all of that is that, yeah, you took the course, but even we didn't necessarily know what we were doing even after taking the course. So now people who really do care and want to do this will either take the course or they have some idea because people are afraid to do this because they don't know what they're doing. And then to just get the waiver, which is great, but you need to have someone out there to help mentor you and give you advice and guidance. And, and that's why you come to our Wednesday Addiction Echo. That's why you come meet us because we're so fun. Yeah. And if you ever wanted to, you just have to go to Katie, K-A-T-I. No. Email K Stangle. Oops. S-T-A-N-G-L at stratushealth.org. How do you spell stratus? S-T-R-A-T-I-S. Yeah, stratus. Kurt doesn't know how to spell stratus. I always put it with a U. Yes. So anyway, awesome. So I don't know what else you want to say about that. Well, we have some upcoming ones. Podcast is going to be fun. There's going to be one on narcotic farms because I do some history stuff. We got, uh, we got a bunch of fun ones coming up. We do have a bunch of fun ones coming up. And yeah, hopefully soon we'll have some information more on decriminalizing drugs in Minnesota. You know, Oregon did some interesting things. Portugal has a really awesome model. I'm but falling yeah. asleep. That's because you're just not into the law stuff. No. I am. So, right. anyway. Well, well, thanks so much for listening. I will let Casey take over. And uh, I guess we can see everybody. Or, or you can listen can to us see next them. week. We can see them if they join the Echo. And, and hello to Australia. Because somebody there is listening to a lot of them. Right? I saw that. Yeah. Sweet. Anyway, later. South Australia around Cape Horn. We're gone from South Australia. Holloway, you rolling things. Holloway, you'll hear me sing. We're bound for South Australia. As I walked out one morning fair. Holloway, Twas there I met Miss Nancy Blair. We're bound for South Australia. Holloway, you rolling things. Holloway, you'll hear me sing. We're bound for South Australia. I shook her up and I shook her down. Holloway, I shook her out and I can't replace. All the way you